two. It's Ken Dashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Ken Dashow, Beatles Revolution number 37. This one's going to be really different. Why? Because producer Andrew is too busy to do it with me. His band, 100,000, they're rehearsing. Well, they're working on a new album, so we'll give them some slack. And you guys know I hate just doing it myself. Just Everybody says, you guys like to talk. No, I don't like to hear myself talk for hours. So I love doing it with somebody. We just had Don McLean last time. So for this episode, which is about, sadly, the end of the Beatles, April 10th, 1970, Paul quits the Beatles, I wanted to bring in a Beatles expert. That Beatles expert would be my wife. Jane Dashow. Hello, Jane Dashow. Hello, Ken Dashow. Welcome to the podcast, Jane Dashow. Why, that's fabulous. For people who listen to radio in New York, uh, you might remember her as Jane Purcell. Yeah, you might. On the air at this magical, crazy place called WNEWFM, simply the most important radio station in America. Nothing else to say. Simply put, yes. Uh, because there was this guy. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Yeah, got it. Paul. Yeah, uh-huh. It was Scott Muni. And Jane came towards the end, but thank God you got to meet Fats and spend some time. As embarrassing as it was when he found out I named the cat after him, yeah. So you have to tell that story. Uh, you know, somebody ratted me out, and I was walking down the hall one day, and he went, Hey, kid, still got the cat? And I said, no, Fats, she's gone. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, that's Fats. Oh, you were smoking at the time, right? Yes, I was. All right, so you have to tell them, because Scott could give, gave up booze, but could not give up the butts. No. Could, could not, not stop smoking. So tell them that story. Actually, I got to tell Paul McCartney this story. That's pretty cool. Yes. Thank you for that one. Yeah, sure. Ken gets a get out of jail free pass <laughs> forever. For Hi, for Paul. This is Jane. <laughs> and Jane worked in radio forever. She's a program director in the Midwest, in Ohio, in Detroit, and, you know, wound up back at NEW. She grew up on Long Island. But you were smoking, and Fats calls out to you. Yeah, says, I was sitting at my desk. I was the assistant music director um, trying to save the music. <laughs> nice. And uh, all of a sudden from inside, I was literally in the alcove outside of his office. And he calls out to me and, hey, kid, grab your smokes and come on in. And I just remember sitting staring at the, at the cursor as it was just flashing on the screen because God had basically just summoned me. And I was frozen in my spot. And about 20 seconds go by and all of a sudden I hear... You're too young to be deaf. Get your ass in here. <laughs> so I walked into, uh, for all intents and purposes, the real Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was uh, Scott's office. There was, yeah, it was pictures McGee's with, closet. Pictures with everybody, uh, things from everybody, piles and piles of records, stuff. Paper, records, paper, sandwiches. Memorabilia, yeah. you know. Jimmy Hoffa, pretty much everything was in there. And we just sat and just had a silent smoke because you know that Fats wasn't big on words all right. the time. It was, that was bonding. Yeah, we just sat there and we smoked. 
And every once in a while, I'd ask him about somebody in one of the pictures, and he'd give me a short answer. And then after a couple of smokes, he went, <clears throat> and I said, I, I got to get back to work. Okay, kid. And that was about it. Perfect. Yeah. All right. So to the sad <laughs> subject of the anniversary at hand, and by the way, <laughs> I should say, you know, everybody says, Ken, you're a Beatles expert. You know everything. Like, well, I know everything about the music. Jane's the one who said, oh, that's the hat Paul bought oh, when they were shooting Help. Oh, she's that, no, no, she's no. that oh. nerd. She's that nerd. Yeah. Okay, but if everybody said that the 60s ended. Throw me under the magical yeah. mystery tour bus. <laughs> Everybody always said Altamont was the end of the 60s. Rolling Stones concert, Tells Angels stabbed the, the guy Meredith, and that was the end of the 60s. For me, the 60s ended on April 10th, 1970. I'm 12 years old, and I look at the headline in the paper. It says, Paul quits the Beatles. The Daily Mirror in London ran that story, Paul quits the Beatles. Yeah. And I, I just, there's no way Paul would quit the Beatles. Even as a kid, I figured, well, John will quit the Beatles. George Harrison, he wants to be Indian. He wants to quit the Beatles. Paul drove the Beatles. He was the guy with his foot on the gas. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out how or why Paul would quit the Beatles. And my friend Joe just looked at me and just said, nah, we'll have four times as many albums to buy. And I thought, well, yeah, but we're not going to get another Beatles album? That sucks. Yeah. So here's the story behind the story. Um, why did Paul quit the Beatles? September of 69, John walks in and says, I want, I want a, a divorce. divorce. He's found Yoko and everything has changed. Think of how fast, first of all, I mean the timeline of the Beatles rise. I mean, you don't say rise and, and sustainability. All they did was rise. From 63, if you want to say from 58 on, it was a trajectory like the Apollo rocket going straight up. At some point, it has to just disintegrate. And that, to me, is what happened. You have to think from the perspective of, by the time we were introduced to them, I mean, I don't remember when they first came over. I was busy with my diapers. Right. Um, but by the time we were introduced to them in the States... They had been together for seven years. For seven years, they had been sleeping together, uh, having relations in the same room, uh, eating together, uh, just laying on top of each other in vans on the way to on the way to gigs because they had no heat in the vans. I mean, they had been together in 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 an unusually intimate way for seven years i mean richie came in later but he was still part of that that whole just way too codependent and way too close to sustain it for too long yeah and as peter asher had said um it's impossible you have to wind up despising each other yes. because you never have a break in a band every right. minute every second you're writing you're eating together you're playing together you're touring together you never get a chance to get away from the other guys no. and by the time we get to 67 after pepper and 68 we get a little breathing room now and the biggest change not that you know, well, you the breathing room—the breathing room came when they when they stopped touring. Stopped touring, and then you had 
two out of the four that basically started hiding in their house. And then you had George who had really started to discover who he, he would become, the man he, he would become. That was far more important to him than being in the band anymore because, you know, he was the little brother and they weren't willing to pay attention to what he was doing. So John and Ringo just wanted to stay in their homes and Paul didn't want it to ever, ever, ever go away. Right. Paul wanted to keep a band together because he loves being in the band. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, may I offer you the fact that this band has been together for 13 years mm-hmm. because it never stops touring and never right. stops Right, he never going. wants to stop it because he loves the he loves the camaraderie. He loves to have people to uh, bounce ideas off of. But you've got John who just wants to go off and do his thing and, and he's found someone who he can be avant-garde with and show that he can be as avant-garde as Paul. And because, you way, know, Paul was the one who was in London, who was going to all of the galleries, who was doing all of the experimental stuff. And then, you know, because they had to be uh, adversaries and friends and, and, and competitors in everything, then John had to show that, you know, oh, well, you know, brother, I can get far more out than you ever could. <laughs> and so, you know, he had a new companion in that. Yeah, I mean, Paul went to the Indica Gallery. He was the one reading beat poetry. He was going to the beat poetry readings. He was the one turning John on going, hey, you should come out to some of these things. And John wants to live sort of a country life. He's he's stuck in the house. But you know the story about Yoko and the gallery, and he goes up on the ladder, and there's a magnifying glass, and written on the ceiling it says yes. yes. And it's what John is looking for. I must have been asked... I don't know, a thousand times in documentaries. Remember that Beatles women that I was asked on? Did Yoko break up the Beatles? No. You know, was Yoko a a force that broke up the Beatles? Because instead of four, John Lennon said, Yoko is my other half. Yoko is part of me. Don't think of me as John. It's John and Yoko. And as the other guy said, as Paul said, hey, we all love our wives, but does she have to be with him every minute? The answer is that's what John wanted. Well, that's what John wanted, and John also used it as as the thing that helped completely take apart the thing that was already fraying at the edges. Right. As I've I mean, always before said, before Yoko if, even walked into the picture, it was fraying at the edges. Without a doubt. I mean, just look at how things change. With they go to Rishikesh to be with the Maharishi. Brian Epstein dies. We're going to do this ourselves. We're going to keep keep carrying on and there's so many different factors that start pulling them apart maybe they were always there but they had a cocoon around them of playing recording touring brian keeping all these other factors away and keeping it contained that they lived inside this incredible magical bubble right and as opposed to being isolated, they're creating the greatest music every minute, every day, pushing the envelope further. So there's no reason to leave the bubble because the world is following you. And then suddenly it pops and we're starting to say, hey, I have to be myself besides the Beatles. Well, you, you go back to, uh, you know, when they were when they were in Wales and they found out that uh, Brian died. And John... And George just wanted, John in particular, just wanted to um, 
mourn Brian's passing. And Paul's reaction is not an atypical reaction at all. We have to get back to work. We have to get back to work because I can't sit in this. I can't sit in this. I have to do something. I have to do something. He's a very type A. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's ground zero. Brian's death is ground zero of the beginning of the true end because he comes up with this idea and everybody has to be on board. And because it was a democracy, that was really not a democracy because at that point, Paul was still saying, hey, we're going to do this and hey, we're going to do that. It, it was a democracy in the sense that Paul said, let's do this. And he just kind of would work everybody until they went, yeah, OK, whatever. Just stop asking. But when you think about it, it is the beginning of the end because, yeah, they did it. And yeah, they had fun. But yeah, they didn't want to do it. And it, John was out of his mind on most of the trip, and and many people have have documented that the that he was very isolated and uh, very hostile towards people on the entire on the entire magical mystery tour. Well, not the entire thing, but a lot of it, because he just wanted to deal with everything that was going on, and Paul didn't want to. And, you know, the, 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 the end of that is that on Boxing Day, they show this thing that is way too trippy for its time that should have been played in color. And as we all know, the BBC, in all their uh, infinite wisdom, decided, well, not many people have color televisions. Let's show it in black and white. And then they get the first bad, truly bad, vicious reviews of their career. I'm sure on a certain level, John reveled in it. Right. This is, gives me another tool to end this. Right. For me, Brian, Brian Epstein's passing is twofold. How do you deal with that? You know, Paul wants to work. They want to mourn. The worst idea that came out of that is, you know what? We'll form our own record label Ugh. and we'll run it and we'll call it Apple Core as a pun, you know, because it's Apple Core. It's the core of the apple, but that name was taken. So you make it like the Marine Corps, C-O-R-P-S. And we'll, and Paul had this Magritte painting of the apple right. in front of the man's head. And so, okay, it'll be Apple. And here's the thing. When the Rolling Stones started Rolling Stone Records, Mick Jagger is London School of Economics. It's something that Jane and I talk about all the time. Right. Art school, art school, dock worker, knockabout. London School of Economics. If the band didn't work out, if the Rolling Stones... He would have been, he would have been prime minister by now yes, if the band hadn't worked absolutely. out. Absolutely. For, forget like Theresa May or anything. It would have been, you know... Prime Minister Jagger said today that they, I mean, he knows, I mean, as, as it, it got lost and he they, they got screwed by Alan Klein, who took all their money, and we'll get to that name in just a minute, but uh. took all their money, and Mick said, never again, we're starting Rolling Stone Records, we're going to get the best lawyers in the world, extricate us from Klein, but and we're going to run But they did that in it. the 70s. Prior right. to that, prior to that, it, you know, at this point in the story, no one knows yet or doesn't want to know yet that Alan Klein is is what Alan Klein was. And, you know, with Apple, because you have four people... And by the way, people... let's just go back for a second. Alan Klein is a New Yorker, is one of those 
you know, obnoxious, confrontational record biz guys. And it's not just him, it's everybody. I'll tell you over and over, find this documentary on iTunes called Bang, the Burt Burns story about Burt Burns who wrote Twist and Shout and Peace of My Heart and produced Brown Eyed Girl and worked for Atlantic. And you'll see that the music business in New York in the 60s makes the Sopranos look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Right. So he is just part of that world where you just, you cheat and steal and fight. And unless somebody comes at you with a gun or a club, it's okay. That's the rules of the game as he knows it. It's the Wild West. Right. But, you know, then you have on top of that four beautifully altruistic people who put together this thing. Yes, it's a record company, but the fact that they wanted it to be a place where everybody could come and 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 share their ideas and 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 launch their music and their electronics and their art and their and their movies and it was just from the get-go it was way too big a uh, Shangri-La that was not uh, that was in no way just like Walking onto walking onto the street when they're waiting for the coach to get painted for Magical Mystery Tour, Paul walks on the street with a pie chart of, yeah, yeah, yeah this is how we're going to do the, the movie. Uh, the, you can't set up a business, a viable business, by saying, come one, come all. And like that's it's some I, carnival. I remember like the it's inter- a church fet. I remember the interview with a British reporter saying, well, you don't just want anyone who's hearing this interview to send you their tapes, do you? And he said, yeah, we do. (laughs) Like, no, you really... And the reporter's looking at him like, no, you really don't want that, do you? You really don't, but they really... Yeah, no, listen to all of it. The the Beatles will listen to... I'm in Kent in a basement. I make biscuits. I can make a tape, Paul. You listen to it. Okie dokie, I'm driving it down there tomorrow. And can you imagine Mick Jagger saying that? I don't think Mick Jagger's saying that. So, but you launch it and... The worst thing to do when your band is cracking at the seams is to say, let's start a company. I can't think of a worse uh, well, for you know, altruistic what's, the old, what's the old adage? Don't start a business with your best friend. Right, exactly. And you, you, you really shouldn't because... And they were all so quetching and bitching about all we do is sign papers. All we do is come in and sign papers. Yes, that's, that's running what a business. A running a business is. You have lawyers, and it's all lawyers and papers. Yes, John, that's what a well, business Brian is. Well, Brian was gone. Right. And, you know, in walks Alan Klein, and then when Paul and Linda to get, get together, in walks Lee Eastman, who it really, would you have the... the, the the, the Alan Klein's the man in black, and Lee Eastman, in in retrospect, right. is the man in white. He Lee Eastman is the elegant Jewish guy from Long Island, and Alan Klein is the street hustler. Scarsdale is the street hustler. And here's the other part: as Paul's always said, in the end, I was right. The other guys, I had to sue him, but they proved that Alan Klein was bad. And Lee Eastman, his father-in-law was a great lawyer and could have straightened it out. But here's the thing, and whether you're setting up a record label and you're the Beatles or you're starting a florist shop, it's very hard when one of four partners says, my father-in-law should be our legal advisor, our business manager, because as altruistic as it is, just think about that. It's a car wash. It's a car dealership. Whatever. It's a food truck. Hey, my father-in-law is good at business. 
oh, so your father-in-law is going to run, is going to be in charge of the money? I don't think so. Right. No, we'll get Alan Klein because he worked with the Stones and he worked with Donovan. Donovan's the one who told me he told the Beatles about Alan Klein. As I've always said, Donovan's the one who broke up the Beatles. <laughs> Forget Yoko. He, he, Donovan okay. said, I'm walking down the street in London and this big limousine pulls up. I said, now what's this? And it was Paul McCartney and John. They said, so, Don, who handles your business? And I said, it's this American named Alan Klein. He said, give us his number, would you? Oh, and I said to Donovan, you broke up the Beatles. Yeah. And he, after when he stopped laughing, he goes, well, I guess in a way I was responsible, partly. I don't think it's all I'm of just crazy about lawsuits. <laughs> Um, yeah, Alan, you know, you're not supposed to speak, you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, but here's the thing. The guys of that era, all of them, Morris Levy, Atlantics, you know, the promoters, that's how it went. Every conversation about a tour, an album, a performance, whatever it was, ended with, I'm going to beat your children to death and throw you in the river. All right. I love you. Goodbye. And right. that's how it, that was the rhythm of New York music. And the Beatles couldn't be further from that. They exactly. were on the moon. Exactly. Yeah. Let's have a boutique and we'll sell clothes and people will design clothes for us. And then they bring in Ken Mansfield from Capitol who knew what he was doing. And Ken's been on Breakfast with the Beatles with me many times. And he said, I thought, well, I, you know, I'm, I enjoy being in L.A. and I'm a Capitol. I'm running this. But if the Beatles call and ask for help, you should pardon the pun. I'll come. He gets to London. As he said, nobody knows what's going on. Right. It's a shambles. It's not even, forget making albums and putting them out. Nobody has any idea of the structure. Who's the distributor? Who's promotion? Who's in charge of A&R? Who's the promotion man? He goes, nobody had set up any structure at all. And I said, all right, I'm going to bring some structure to this. And But all four people have to sign off on it. That's their rule. And you can never get four people in the room, you have to come in. And I said to him, you have to come in every day. And mm-hmm. George says, I hate coming in every day. Right. No, but you if 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 the rule is all four of you have to vote and sign off on everything. Then all of you need to come in every day. But in they, every they day. were not businessmen. Right. Uh, Paul's a very good businessman. Right. And he learned. Now, but, it, you know, back then, they, they, they were not great businessmen. That wasn't their strong suit. And as it comes apart at the seams, two other factors are happening. John... Is 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 on heroin. It's very simple to say. We can dance around it. John's on heroin, and as we know, what that does to every human being, they're soulless. They don't. There's no joy to it. There's no. There isn't one person, not Keith Richards, not Eric Clapton, that one person ever said, "Boy, when I was on heroin, that's that was fun times." He he's gone. He's with Yoko, and look, bed ends for peace, and we're singing about peace. That's all fun. You do whatever you want, but. They're trying to make, as Paul's trying to save this, let's go back to our roots and let's make a movie about coming together and playing live and we'll make this last movie and document it and we're going to play in this big theater and it'll be great. And then that becomes the, the that really becomes the death knell in its own way. Without yes, we doubt. know they got back together to, to record Abbey Road after that, but... The fact that there were constantly cameras, I'll play if you want me to, and I won't play if you don't want me it's to, whatever so it pleases you. I mean, that whole thing is so painful to watch. When I was a kid watching it, I always thought, 
oh, man, Paul's an a-hole, man. What is this? You know, he's trying to boss everybody around, blah, 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 blah. Going back to it as an adult, and as some people, you know, get snarky with me and call me a Paul apologist now, looking at it as an adult, it's like he's desperate. He's desperate to keep it together because it's the family that he knows. It's the family that he wants. He doesn't want to lose somebody else. And it's it's that desperation and the fact that he's type A that drove his that drove his behavior at that point. And you've got a camera on it. And you got George who's got one foot out the door. You've got John who's living on planet John. And Richie's just bored out of his skull at that point because he doesn't have a purpose. Right. He quit. Yeah. Richie quit. George quit. John quit. Paul was the only one who didn't quit. The basic fact of the matter, though, is the way I've always seen it is that movie, you know, as an adult, you look at that movie and you say, that's four people having a nervous breakdown at the same time. Well said. They were having... You know, George is chanting hours and hours and hours a day, and and, and they just were so... They they basically ended up being cannibalized by what their experiences were. And then... And because they never dealt with any of it, because it came at them at such an incredible speed, they just fell apart, each of them individually, and you cannot stay together in that kind of a, a horrible fugue state. That's what it is. Now, the only, there's only one way to make matters even worse. You don't have George Martin. You don't have Jeff Emmerich. You have Phil Spector. You have, you have the only person, <laughs> and more obnoxious than Alan Klein that you could ever find, right. Phil Spector, to produce this album. And, you know, he's... he Now, and again, I'll give you two sides of this, of suddenly there's... You know, harps and strings and all this crazy, you know, this big production. After the fact. And and Paul says it's like a dog licking itself to death. Like it's it never stops. He said, I want all this taken off, mm-hmm. you know, like Long and Winding Road or let it be very simple. I don't want harps. I don't want violins. But this comes 14 days after he's heard the first tapes. And Alan Klein says, I said, you know, Phil Spector said, send them all acetates and tell me immediately what they like or don't like. And Paul allegedly changed his number and they couldn't reach him. Whether that's bullshit or not, who knows? It might have been or it might have been that Paul couldn't bear to listen to it. So it took him two weeks or, you know, whatever or the reality Or it could sub- just be something very basic. You don't tell him what to do and you don't tell him no. Right. George Martin knew how to tell him no. Because they trusted George. Right. As, you know, when it came back to that. As, this as... freak bag in a wig, a little interloper from L.A. comes twitching into the studio. He's not going to trust him. Now, this is the hardest thing in the world for yours truly, Ken Dasha, to do. There's one statement that Phil Spector made, and I will defend him. He said, they're coming apart at the seams. They hate each other's guts. And they hand me this mishmash of bullshit. John's playing the wrong notes. They're off mic. It's out of tune. It's out of sequence. And they say, here, it's the last Beatles album. Make something out of it. (laughs) So I'm rearranging it. I'm speeding up tapes. I'm slowing it down. And where it can't be saved, 
I'm adding orchestra. I'm adding layers and layers of strings and harps to cover what's not there. And you can hate me all you want, but I gave you a number one song out of it because Long and Winding Road with all my stuff on it is number one and Let It Be is a monster hit, so screw you. And he's crazy as a March hare, but that's true. They couldn't, John couldn't care less, was barely playing, didn't mm-hmm. play the right notes. And you hand a producer chunk like that, whether you're the Beatles or the Drainpipe Dandies, and a producer's going to say, this is garbage. But if you're the Beatles, you go, well, I can't tell them this is junk, come back, because they'll never come back right. to fix it. All right, I need strings. I need a string section, and let's see if I can do something with it. So on a technical level, I'll give him that. But now we come all these years later, you know, when, when Paul does Let It Be Naked, strips it all back, but the technology now, because of computers, because well, that, you've got... Well, that's the thing. We have the technology. Right now you've that, got that, Pro Tools. Back then, he didn't even have Gorilla Glue. Right. He's good. They're, you know, they're cutting and pasting with scissors. Right. But now with, with now that you have Pro Tools, now Paul was really able to sit down with an engineer and fix it and make it sound like what he wanted it to be. But right. But it wasn't going to happen <laughs> in 1970. But again, what he wanted it to be. And I don't mean that as a slam. Hey, listen. Because they, he still cared. Right. I mean, when they asked Ringo, what did you think of Let It Be Naked when it came out? <laughs> it's one of my favorite, Jane and I, our favorite lines. And Ringo said, well, it's how it should have sounded. It sounds great. You know, Paul Paul made it sound the way it was supposed to sound. Of, of course, Paul was right. Paul's, Paul's always, always right. right. <laughs> and he just let that hang in the air. <laughs> like, okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. So when Paul quits the Beatles, April 10th, 1970, it is simply Paul as the face of the last guy who cared saying, we're done. When he says, I don't foresee us writing anymore. I don't see how John and Lennon and I are going to write anymore or it won't be done. And just the shockwaves of how could Paul quit the Beatles? But the truth was, it was just the opposite. Paul was the one doing everything he could think of, handstands, to keep this band together. Um, I forgot who said it was that, you know, the Beatle wives were around. But when the boys came in to record, they said, Linda always knew when to leave. Patty always knew when to leave. Maureen mm-hmm. Starkey knew when to leave. Why is Yoko still here? And again, again, double-edged sword. John wanted her there. He said, you know, if you're talking to me, you're talking to Yoko. It's John and Yoko. That's our name. The flip side is Yoko could have said, you know what? This isn't right. This is the Beatles. I'll be with you when we record the Plastic Ono Band. When you're doing the Beatles, be the Beatles, and I'll wait outside. She could have fixed it if she wanted to. Mm. You could have. If the other women left, you know you could have walked out too. Yoko didn't see herself as just one of the women. She was an artist. I don't care. I I I I I know. But Whether you're an artist or a singer or you know a flower arranger, when you know this band is the four people, and even if John says no, I want you to stay, you could have said, uh, I'll stay when we do Plastic Ono Band, but you should be here and get this done with your mates. And she said to me ten years ago. John needed his friends around him. I realize that now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not holding any grudges. I don't, there's no evil. But she said that 
recently. Well, you have two things going on there that you you have to think about for a second. They were in the throes of new obsessive love. They were also doing drugs together. You're right. And that's a very powerful aphrodisiac, as we all know. You're right. You have that. You also have another extraordinarily powerful aphrodisiac for any woman. This guy's putty in my hands. Ooh, I have all the power. Awesome! Yeah. You, you, you can't deny that either. So, you know, if you're off on that power trip, which I can't say I would blame her for, it's it's just the perfect storm, you know. It's not Yoko's fault. It's 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 nobody's fault. They had grown apart. They had grown up. They had other interests. They were they were just different people, and they had a right to come apart at the seams. The reason why April tenth, nineteen seventy, was such a shockwave is because none of us, you know, we we have all of this in 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 hindsight. Yep. But at the time, none of us knew. That George had why George was the first one who quit, or was it Richie? Uh, no, Richie. Quit Richie first. quit first, and they went and and this, then they, John they sent flowers to, to the right. house and blah blah blah. Yeah. And John went to his house and said, "You don't quit, I quit." Right. And, and Richie said, "No, everybody hates me." And John went, "No, everybody, everybody hates, hates me. me. We all love you." And then and, yeah, and George said, "No, they no, everybody they hates all hate me. me." And then Paul said, "Everybody hates me." And you realize how far apart you've right. come from. Sleeping in the same room and having sex with girls in the Reaper Bond in the same room, you know, because there wasn't two rooms where you, you know, you're that close to. We're now talking through Alan Klein, you right? Know, and we were suing each other. And as May Pang said, the final dissolution, it took five years, 1975. Right. She's with John in Disneyland with Julie when the papers come in and he finally signs it. Five, five years of this torture of this legal torture right of paul having to sue his closest friends in the world to undo this contract to get out from alan klein and they do and they finally get a decent deal and then the money starts coming back in and ball's right of course and you know he was <laughs> and he does gloat a little bit about it because you know i was he right. earned it he did yes he did because he he saw that this guy was going to steal it for, him, for himself. Just as the Stones feel about their early work that he still has, they hate the fact that Abco is still part of. Right. If you guys don't know, that's Alan Klein. That's Abco of, you know, of where that came from. He was a tough guy. He would, that, But again, asterisk, watch this movie, Bang the Burt Burns Story, and you'll say, oh, that's just how business was done back then. Or... Watch All You Need Is Cash. <laughs> the Ruddles. <laughs> and watch the part about Ron Decline. And that kind of sums it up, too. Right. <laughs> Brian Epstein dies. Yoko comes into the picture. There's there's heavy drugs now, not just LSD. They st- try to form a business. It's friendship versus business. It is virtually, virtually impossible to keep a friendship going when you're business partners. It does happen. But imagine the friendship is coming apart at the seams and you start a business, but now you're also trying to produce albums. They've got Badfinger. Uh, Peter Asher brings in this long-haired kid from Massachusetts, James Taylor. Right. You've got all these artists who are coming out of the woodwork Trini who are Lopez. good. 
yeah, you've got Mary Hopkin. You've got so many good artists who are coming into your umbrella. And the saddest part is they're not well managed. No. Because you're not Atlantic, you're not CBS, you're not RCA. You, you don't have the tools you haven't set up in place to sign 20 artists and Jackie Lomax and whatever else you have and say, okay, you're going to record and you're going to tour and here's your tour manager and here's who, you know, it, none of that's there. You just thought it was a cool idea and everything there is half-assed and Ken Mansfield can't even pull it together. Okay, but you also have to strip away all of that, all those machinations for a second and look at the natural trajectory of any friendship. It is rare for a friendship to survive the life changes that happen in any life. Happen with it me is, and my high school friends. Right. Happen with you. Yeah. With all I of mean, us. it's, you know, my best friend and I are still best friends going on 30 years. <laughs> and it's, it's because the way that our lives changed were similar enough that we were able to to survive any of the changes that in in a lot of other cases you don't you know you add kids into the equation you add you add um divorces you add divorces changes. you add yeah you know i want to live in the country i want to live in the city you you know you just add you know um how you deal with pol even if you're on the same side of the political fence how you deal with politics um just you just change as people and you don't always change the same way and there's no fault and there's no foul in that and we forget that when we're talking about the Beatles right because they're set they're ex, they're expected to sit in a different place and 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 react differently to life when it's not possible whether we like it or not they're human see that's as John Lennon has always said I know the, some of the Beatles, and they're right bastards, every one of them. <laughs> you know, and it's it's funny, but he's making the point. And uh, yeah. as, here's two things that I want to sort of wrap up with that Ken Mansfield shared when he got to Apple. He said when he would talk about, you want to do this, you want to do this, that, and John or Paul would say, oh, the Beatles would never do that. Oh, the Beatles can't do that. Well, the Beatles might do this. And... He said, they sound like spoiled basketball players yeah, in the NBA. Yeah. About, he said, it's weird that they were talking about themselves in the third, third person. person. He said, and then I realized, no, they're not. This is John, Paul, George, and Ringo, these four guys who have put together a half-assed business, and they're talking about the one band that's on this label that's the most successful band in the history of the world called the Beatles. So they're talking about a band. And it just so happens, coincidentally, that they're the band. But they really had a split dichotomy. I'm John, and I don't think the Beatles would ever do that. And they really did separate mm -hmm. the Beatles. That was my first lesson learned. Mm -hmm. And then you take that energy and say, well, we got to shoot something live because what we have is crap. You know, and Ken's idea was book him in a club and call them another name and just open the doors. Yeah, do the Sergeant Pepper thing again. Right, cause... but and the word got out. He said, no matter what we booked, right. it was always loose lips. We can't go anywhere. And he said, I think it was Ringo who said, why don't we go up on the roof? And George said, I don't want to go on the roof. You're going on the roof. I don't want to. So they set up the cameras on a cold, cold February day. And as Ken said, they took over one of the, you know, one of the offices as a dressing room. 
and they got dressed and they were rehearsing and he said they were nervous uh, they were absolutely nervous they weren't fighting about the business or anything uh, how does this go all right what's the middle part how does it and they were they were they were nervous about getting the music right mm-hmm goes you know showtime one o'clock time to go up there and they start playing and he said it was as if like a light just exploded over london everything melted away and once they started Mm -hmm. he goes everybody on that rooftop including the four guys and billy preston they they knew we knew this was it this was a moment we didn't know that this was the end of the beatles performing live but we knew Somehow, he says, I can't tell you how, but I knew this was never going to happen again. And we, I just sat there standing there freezing. Ken Mansfield's the guy in the white coat mm-hmm. standing against the chimney. And I just kept thinking, please, God, tell me the sound is okay and that the cameras <laughs> are rolling because we ain't doing this again. Yeah. And, you know, when everybody says, when are they going to re-release Let It Be? Re- well, hey, we've cleaned up the home movies of your parents divorcing. It's now on HD. No, it's it's now in 4K. Would you like to see it? Yeah. I I love the music. I hate watching them fight. I hate watching our parents fight. I just fight. remember in in high school, we had this thing called the... the, the um, uh, what did we call it? Oh, wow, I just forgot what we called it. There was, there was an area, a common area, where they used to play movies every year, every uh, every day. And one one week they did let it be, so uh, we actually cut a lot of classes that week because you know let it be is is playing in the commons the commons that was what it was called yay, and we sat there day after day after day watching bits and pieces of let it be just sobbing, because it is like watching your parents break up. It's terrible. So, um, as a as an epilogue to all this. The question that everybody keeps asking, could the Beatles have gotten back together no. after time? No. Answer's no. No. Part two of that, for me, I wouldn't want the Beatles to get back together. There was a book, a really funny book that came out in the late 70s called Paperback Writer. The conceit of the book is this guy interviewed all four of them and lost the notes and lost the tapes. So he was trying to write the book from memory. And the entire thing is is a riff. It's really funny. Um, there's pictures, like there's one picture. It's just the, the top of a milk bottle, and, it's, and it says that it's a picture of Yoko's art, air, you know, aerial view of a milk bottle in the snow, uh, various other things. But at the end of that book... He does this whole thing that they do get back together. And John can't write anymore. Because John isn't having experiences except for watching television. So he writes this big epic song about Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, Paul is, it, it, you know... It, handing in trash as well and and but i i just the thing i remember is that everything that john wrote about for this this reunion was about television and they do a show and they do a show and they do the new stuff i believe it was at shade that they did this show they do the new stuff and everybody just sits there and you get the golf applause if that and it isn't until they start going back 
to playing the stuff from the 60s that everybody explodes in the in the stands and again when you think about that yeah it's all funny and that part of it made a really good point leave it alone yep because that isn't what we want because you can't catch lightning in a bottle twice you just can't and it wasn't just lightning it was a light that changed the world it was it was we, they use the word groundbreaking so effortlessly on anything now. Mm-hmm. No, no. The whole world changed in February of 64 when we saw them on Ed Sullivan and they hit the airwaves here. And, you know, the, Ringo's 70th birthday, Radio City Music Hall. He says, good night. They do with a little help from my friends. And suddenly, Paul McCartney, Ringo leaves the stage. And as he leaves stage right, Paul McCartney walks on stage left and the band breaks into birthday and Ringo comes running back onto the stage, jumps on the kit and Ringo's playing drums to birthday and Paul is singing it to him. And I thought Radio City was going to come down. I mean, it's a big place. If you've been to Radio City, these are adults, mostly adults and the screaming from adults, lawyers, doctors, housewives, Bankers sounded just like Shay, and Mark Rivera has said it over and over on that stage. You know, I'm I'm Joe Walsh, me, Sammy. You know, who whoever was on that stage, Colin Hay. Nobody had ever heard anything like that at all. We've all played stadiums and arenas. We've all heard the biggest applause in the world. You never heard anything like that. Our hearts were pounding in our mouth. The hardest thing was to stay in time. Because your heart was ready to burst. You had never heard anything like that. And that was that one moment, he said, where I felt like I I can't imagine this every night when you played. Mm -hmm. How could you survive it? He goes, it was just, it was five minutes. Because they didn't. The fact that they made it till 66 of touring and playing is remarkable. Absolutely. Because anybody says, you know, it's, oh, it's so easy. You got girls and money. I've always said it. You try it. You try for, it for two weeks. See if you could survive. Uh, just I don't even mean the Beatles. Try the Foreigner tour for two weeks. See right. if you could do it. Or and then you put on top of it. Oh, you want to go shopping? Okay, we'll close the store and you'll go shopping at one in the morning by yourself with security. How George Harrison bought his first house. The realtor took pictures of the houses, brought them over, laid them out, yep. and he said that one looks nice. I'll buy that one because he could not go out to go look for houses and see it himself. Right. I mean, so put yourself in that cage. Forget about the girls and the accolades and the money. Put yourself in that cage and see how you do. Now, the Beatles were not going to get back together, but would they ever write again? Here's where things changed for me, and it's thanks to our dear friend May Pang, and Jane and I love May. Uh, When John was with May for about a year and a half, a little more. And they're in LA. And, you know, May is very, it's funny, for this beautiful young Chinese gal, she is such a Jewish mother. She is absolutely (laughs) brilliant at putting people together in the right place. Mm -hmm. And she just said to John, hey, Paul and Linda are in LA. You want to call them, invite them over? And, well, I don't know, can we just call, I mean, what should we do? You have his number? Yeah, so call him. I'll get his number. And, 
I said, Paul and Linda just came over and we had some wine and we had some other things. And we, we chatted and we talked. And Paul just sat down at the piano and started playing. And, uh, you know, John picked up a guitar. And they had finished, they were working, John was on the Harry Nielsen uh, sessions. He was working on Pussycats? Right. And, yeah. And Paul came by, Paul and Linda came by later. That was it. And Paul, it was like, it was almost finished. And Paul got on the drums. And he said, there was no big, um, do you want me to play the guitar? Or should I? He goes, we were just all talking. And Paul starts playing. And, and John starts playing. And they start writing. And she said, Linda and I just sitting on the couch. And we look at each other. And we just kept talking because we don't want to go, oh, my God. We just want to keep it light because they couldn't help not write. But here's the thing. You go back to the fact that they were basically babies together. You go back to the fact that they were best friends. They, they still were at that point, but the, you know, whether they were fighting or not. But the way that they always communicated was still there. So that was their version of, remember in high school when we pants that guy yep. by his locker? Yep. That was their version of that. You're absolutely but their right. version of that could have created some beautiful music, or it could have been returned to Gilligan's Island. Right. No, I think there would have been some... <laughs> I want to believe, at least, there would have been some amazing Lennon-McCartney songs. Not that they would have performed them together, but there should have been more songs. And thank you, Paul, for continuing to play live and giving us chills, and Ringo and the All-Star Band yeah. coming around again this summer. So from Jane Dashow... And me, Ken Dashow, that's us, April 10th, 1970. Paul quits the Beatles, but the answer is that was just showing us what had been happening for the last few years. Peace and love.